It's Friday, and after about a month of no Friday Q&As, because I've had my hands covered in grease, fixing my camper, fixing my truck, and dealing with all of that, we're back. It's Friday Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, insight, and encouragement that you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua, and I am your host, and man, it is good to be back to a Friday Q&A show. I have missed these, and uh, today is particularly fun because on the road, I'm sitting here at a rest area on the side of the road recording a show. Isn't technology great? last uh, couple of months as, as uh, we've been working on planning out uh, our cross-country trip, one of the things that I wanted to be able to do was to uh, record an on-the-road show. And, uh, you know, my own, I can hear my, my, what I've just done here is a little bit rusty. We'll get better with time. But just to, to talk about how amazing the world we live in it really is as we get started here. Um, I am sitting here recording a podcast underneath a tree at a picnic table at a rest area on the side of the highway while my family and I desperately drive north to escape the summer heat. Isn't that amazing that I can sit here and speak to you in what I'm hoping is pretty decent quality as you drive across the country, drive across the world, work at your job, work out in the gym, whatever you're doing. And I can do this with you know several hundreds of dollars of equipment and you know not that much money on a monthly cost that it costs me. And I can talk to people all over the world. From time to time, I go through these circumstances and I just see how much the world is changing. And as far as I'm concerned, this is a perfect example of how much that is changing. So man, it's good to be back to Friday Q&A shows. My hope, hope, hope is beginning this coming week, we'll be back to a consistent, reliable schedule here on Radical Personal Finance. It has been the last couple of months have been incredibly tumultuous. So we begin today with Friday Q&A on time with live phone lines. These Friday shows, if you're interested in joining me for a Friday show, just sign up to become a patron of the show at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. If you join there, you get access to the conference call. You can call in and talk with me about anything that you would like to talk. We begin with Leif in Alabama. Leif, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. How can I serve you, sir? Hey, Josh. Thanks so much. Um, I'm 37 years old. I'm a stay-at-home dad right now. I've had a uh, kind of an independent career in video production, and partly as a result of your inspiration, I'm uh, currently in a CFP program wanting to become a personal financial planner. I really just want to help people, and uh, I know that heart will only get you so far. Uh, I wonder what advice you have for someone starting out in this career. How far along uh, the path are you in terms of, are you just thinking about this? Have you decided I'm doing this and you're taking classes? Have you started interviewing with firms? Where are you in the process? Um, I've decided I'm doing it and I am in the second class of my CFP program and plan to take the test next July. Up until that point, I'm going to uh, plan to be a stay-at-home dad and then after I take the test, I plan to go out and uh, search for jobs. So you have young children in July after you take your CFP exam, then that's when you plan to go back. And do you intend to work full-time, part-time? How do you intend to handle your child care responsibilities with your career? Um, well, my wife uh, 
will be able to help. She's currently starting her career, so right now she's working night shift, and it just wasn't an option for me to go out. And uh, well, it wasn't an option that we wanted to accept uh, uh, for me to go out and find full time childcare. So um, I do look, plan to work full time, and uh, between my wife and my family support, uh, we hope to uh, figure out the childcare at that point. Okay. Have you chosen or are you interested in a certain track within the world of financial planning or are you just at the stage where you're gathering information? I'm mostly gathering information. I'm pretty sure I don't want to work in uh, corporate finance. Uh, I want to work face-to-face with clients, help them with their family. My background is, you know, my parents didn't teach me a lot about finance and as a result, I'm find myself in a spot where I can advise my friends and family a little bit. And I really enjoy that. And I just want to be able to help teach people and uh, make a decent living. Well, you can do both of those things. So uh, starting from the fact that you don't have a strong, uh, kind of a strong ideology established, let me just give you some ideas. The reason I ask is many people do have a strong ideology. For example, some people know that without a question, they want to manage money. They want to do investing. They love the topic of investing. They really enjoy thinking about stocks, designing portfolios, et cetera, and they want to be a money manager. If you come to the idea that you have an interest in something like that, that's going to drive you in a certain direction in the industry because being a money manager would not be at all compatible with your having a local office in your hometown where you're selling life insurance. Uh, Some people feel very strongly about a structure of compensation. So there's a big press in the the financial planning world to be a fee-only financial advisor, not to earn any money on commissions. Or some people really want to pay just hourly. They just want to earn their money on hourly fees. And if you have some strong ideological bent like that, then you're going to have to consider that, and that'll drive you in another direction. So as you're going through your educational process, here's the first thing that I would encourage you to do. You have the time to interview various types of financial advisors. And that's what you should be doing now. I get very nervous with people really investing a lot of time in a big, challenging educational track before they've had exposure to a career or to an industry. Now, in your case, I think it makes sense because you said, I'm primarily working as a stay-at-home dad. I can fit my studies here in my uh, parental duties. And this is a really efficient way to do it. And you will come out the other side well-credentialed and you'll be in a good starting place. So I think it makes sense for you. But conceptually, I get really uncomfortable with people spending a lot of money and time on studying something when they're not sure if they actually like the business in the first place. So the way that you can head that off at this point is to engage in a process of interviewing. And your situation, you're you're a very non-threatening person in terms of you're not looking for anything from anybody. You're just looking for information. And so I would begin by interviewing as many different financial advisors as you uh, as you possibly can. Look at your schedule and figure out, maybe you can do one a week or one every two weeks for the coming year and try to interview people in different occupations that are locally. So here would be some examples. Start with the guys at the big traditional firms, like look around and see if you know anybody or have a friend or a family friend or any connection with somebody at a Morgan Stanley or a Merrill Lynch or or the local bank, the, the financial advisor at the local bank, or if you bank at a local credit union, 
union, talk to their financial person and say, hey, can I buy you lunch? I'm interested in getting into your career. Do you, uh, would you be interested in, in sharing with me a little bit of information about it? Uh, additionally, uh, talk to some of the big local insurance companies. Uh, consider the local property and casualty companies, so traditional ones like State Farm and Allstate. Talk to some independent brokerage companies. If, there's, uh, if you live locally and you live in Smithtown, then there'll be a Smithtown insurance agency. And so uh, find out who the insurance agent is there and, and ask them to lunch and ask them some questions about it. Um, call up your local life insurance companies. Call New York Life, Northwestern Mutual, Mass Mutual. Uh, look and see if there's a prudential office or, or, or an independent life insurance company. Uh, talk to your local uh, benefits companies like a local Aflac or other types of sales roles. Look to see if there's a local accountant who offers financial planning services. If there's an accountant with financial planning work that, that you can talk to, then um, see if maybe they can uh, provide some advice or some insight for you. But I would work my way through and interview as many different people as possible. And in that process, you'll gain from real people who, uh, what they like and what they don't like about their business structure. And you'll st- and just ask good questions. Ask them why they chose the path. Ask them if they were starting over in your situation, what they would do. Would they do the same thing again? Would they do something different? And if you'll do that over the course of, let's say, you've got a year plus. So in the next year, if you'll interview 30 to 40 different financial advisors doing different types of, of practices, different types of businesses, I think you'll develop a better understanding of the business than you could even you could even get from talking to somebody like me because you're going to be working with people locally. Now, here is the incentive that they have to talk with you and the incentive that you have to talk with them. In addition to understanding the industry, recognize that they are always prospecting for good candidates to join their company. And that's the biggest challenge they face. So that's why almost anybody will take a meeting with you. Even if the person that you're talking to isn't involved directly in recruiting for their firm, they can uh, pass along a recruiting a recruit, a potential recruit to a recruiting officer. And if you were to join their firm, then they'll receive a, a referral bonus. Usually in most companies, they'll pay that person a referral bonus. So that's in their best interest to talk to you. And so you should find that very, very non-threatening. But by doing it, you'll find get exposure to a lot of people. Now, here's what I would look at. I would look at your areas of interest and I would look at your community and try to figure out who you would want to serve. There is almost any any way that you could imagine you could structure yourself into the financial planning business. And with your being on the entry side of financial planning, you haven't known all these different people who've done different things like I'm, like I'm describing to you. Uh, and so you can't know exactly where in the industry would I best land. And frankly, you're probably not going to know until you've actually started the business. And most people who are entering the financial planning business bounce around from one company to another company. They try different compensation models until eventually they settle on uh, a winner. Yes, there are people who, who pick a company and go with it and stay there, but many people bounce around. Uh, and so if I were going to go back into it personally, and this is, I'll just tell you my personal bias, what I really enjoy is I really enjoy technical challenges and I enjoy, um, I enjoy technical challenges and I don't love the public investing markets. I don't 
thrive on the world of publicly traded securities. It bores me a lot. I feel like it's an extremely overstudied area. There's so much competition in that area, and there's the smartest people in the world who do that type of work. So that doesn't appeal to me. But I have a lot of friends who love that, and they, and they really do well at that. If you love it, and if you do well with it, you can learn what you need to learn, credential yourself up, develop a client base, and you can develop a boutique investment advisory firm where all you do is manage money. That wasn't me, so that's not the direction that I would go, but that might be the direction you would go, and you should in investigate people like that. What I really love from a product stand, from a structure standpoint, is I really love the world of insurance products and, and technical financial planning. The reason I love it is because it's under, uh, there, it's, in my opinion, it's undersold. Um, when you go into the world of insurance products, whether you did that with a local general agency, so so think of, for example, your local State Farm guy where you do property and casualty insurance or, or you can, uh, and also some financial planning products, because those products are so, uh, they're needed so much by people, then you have a wide base of people that you can help. Uh, so I would seriously consider that. And I think that in that world, you can set yourself apart largely through the service that you offer. Uh, there's still a tremendous amount of service that you can do. And if you're interested in a particular area, for example, I had a good friend of mine who was an insurance broker, and what all he does is does business insurance for very large companies. It's a very different compensation model, but one of the things he loves about it is his business is primarily a service business, and he's judged not on his, on his ability to produce uh, investment returns. He's judged on his ability to, uh, to help business owners solve their insurance needs and keep premiums competitive. And so that really works well for him. He really loves the property and casualty insurance side of things. I personally love life insurance. It's such a fun world to me. It's such an interesting world um, that if I were to go back, I would, I could, I could happily at this point build a career doing nothing but selling life insurance. And the wonderful thing about life insurance is the, the compensation structure. Because you're paid by the insurance company, you can work with people and you can build a tremendous stream of revenue for your practice that also builds up ongoing residual income for you and you don't have to deal with some of the account management stuff that you have to do on the investment side. When I was a new financial advisor, I, w I thought the investment side was super interesting and I was really engaged and I thought it was super sexy. I thought the idea of selling life insurance was 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 it was just not, it was not sexy enough for me. And so I moved in the direction of, of, of investments. Looking back now, there's a guy in my town who does nothing but massive estate planning, complex uh, life insurance uh, policies. Uh, and if I were to go back and do it again, I would seriously consider building a career like that. Um, if you love the financial planning aspect of things, the tax law, etc., that works really well in the retirement space. And that's the other place that you can build a holistic practice, is if you like doing retirement planning, people who are retiring usually need so many little things to be buttoned up that that's a, that's a place where a good financial planner can really provide a lot of value. Now, there are a lot of things beyond that, but those are just kind of some, some segments of the marketplace that I find really interesting. Um, I also personally would, would really enjoy working in the context of a multifamily office because of the interest of it. Instead of just dealing with, okay, we've got our publicly traded mutual funds, you're dealing with real estate. You know, we're doing some real estate acquisitions in Thailand. We've got a, a stock portfolio over here. We're reviewing the, the property and casualty insurance. That type of work really appeals to me. And also the tax side of things really appeals to me. But 
but as you're studying, just take note of the different things that, that you find interesting and interview. And if you'll do those two things, then I think, you know, six months from now, you can call me up and you can say, okay, I'm really interested in this type of business. And you can divide, des- des- design a way into that particular area of planning. Um, that's all I got for now, Leif. Is that any follow-up questions for me? That's all really good. I think one follow-up question would be, is there a model uh, to help low-income income people and make good money? Or is it kind of a side thing where you're going to have your high net worth clients that are your bread and butter and then have some on the side that you do for you know pro bono or, or just because you like to help people? I, I really don't think there's a motto, model. I really don't. Um, go work for Dave Ramsey uh, and you know work with him with his seminars, his radio program. Uh, it, it sounds silly, but but you have to you have to look and you have to see. And here, let me explain why I don't. I don't think there is a much of a model. Uh, so to to start with, more than any other person that I know personally in the financial advice space, space business. Um, I think I, when I was a practicing financial advisor, I think I helped more low-income people than anyone else I knew because that was my market. I started in the financial planning business when I was 23 years old. And so the people that I was calling on were primarily 23-year-old people just starting getting their first job, making $50,000 a year. I didn't come from a wealthy family. I worked with advisors who they came from wealthy parents and they just all of a sudden, the first phone calls they could pick up, the first phone calls they could make when they got in the business were to people earning hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars per year. They could sell giant cases and do very, very well, but I couldn't. I didn't have that market. And so my average client for my first couple of years really was a young, single, or newly married couple with a household income right about the median income. And I, and I also was not hardcore enough. I was. I should have been. To make more money, I should have been more discriminating in who I was willing to go and see. But man, there were so many times I'd wind up at this little broken down house, this little you know double wide trailer, you know, working with some elderly person living on social security because that was where my heart was. I wanted to help them. But so other people would just, they would just turn around and leave. And, and I learned in time, like, I can't make a business on this. If you could make a business on it, about the only time you could do it is if your if your low income person had a large opportunity. So like they were the kind of person where they were probably going to be doing better in the future. In that case, then you could afford to do work with them if you sold insurance. So if they needed disability income insurance or life insurance, um, I before uh, the Affordable Care Act, I would from time to time sell some health insurance. The Affordable Care Act changed the whole market and the individual health insurance marketplace collapsed. Um, so, uh, so, but if you could sell some life insurance or disability income insurance, then you could maybe make enough money to make it worth your while. But it's just not there. And here's why. People who don't have a lot of money, they're primarily focusing on their needs. They're primarily focusing on their rent, their, 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 their food, their, their, rep, you know, their entertainment, etc. Second thing is people who don't have a lot of money are usually there because of a choice, that, uh, choice or a series of choices they've made. Now, tragedy strikes a lot of people. But when you start working with people who are low income, you'll find very rarely that they have a low income because tragedy struck. And you'll usually find they have a low income because they just don't care about money. Well, if your job is trying to care about money, you can't help people who don't care about money. And there's just no, where's the money going to come from? Um, 
people, uh, uh, for you as a, as, a, as a competent professional, if you look at your business, you should be charging as a financial planner, you should, you should target an hourly wage of no less than a couple hundred dollars per hour when you're with a client. And you have to do that because, uh, because your actual time to, of all of the infrastructure, the administrative expense, et cetera, you, you can't do anything less than that. So let's say that you were just going to say, I'm going to set my goal on 100000 a year. Um, and you should, that should be the bare minimum that you desire to make as a financial advisor. Uh, that should be the, the, the absolute minimum. Um, so $100,000 a year means you need to produce $50 per hour of every single hour on a 40-hour work week of value. Well, where's your revenue going to come from, from uh, of doing $50 an hour a week? You can't possibly spend 40 hours a week in front of clients. A busy, busy advisor, busy advisor who's working hard is going to keep probably about 15 to 20 hours a week in front of clients. If you could keep 20 hours a week in front of clients or prospective clients week in, week out, if you actually did that, you would make you know, half a million bucks a year. But um, to start with, if you could just do, you know, keep 20 hours a week in front of clients, that automatically puts you at $100 an hour. Now to get in front of 20 20 clients a week, sorry, 20 hours a week in front of clients, that's going to require an additional 40 hours a week doing the client work, uh, phoning to get those clients there, figuring out your marketing plan to get those clients there. So now all of a sudden it moved you up to a 60 hour work week, which is about the normal starting, starting week. And so basically like you can't afford to sit and talk with somebody for less than a couple hundred dollars an hour. And what, yet, what, what person do you know that doesn't have a lot of money? Have you ever met somebody who is broke, doesn't have a lot of money, who would be willing to sp- sit down and write you a check for two, three hundred dollars an hour just to sit and talk with them for an hour? Have you ever had a conversation like that, Leif? No, they, I haven't. Yeah, they, they don't do it. They will not do it. So then you look and you say, well, how can I work with this person? How can I work with this person otherwise? People who are poor are not used to writing checks to professionals for their time. People who are wealthy are. They, they write checks to all kinds of people for their time because they have the money and they're used to allocating the money, but people who are poor aren't. So then you say, well, I've got to do it based upon commission. And that, that is true because then instead of you being sent, written your check by the person, you're being written your check by the company whose products you're selling. Well, you can't sell investment products that are commission-based to somebody who is low income. There's not enough money on a commission to make it worth your time, again, unless they, they have you know, $300,000 in their 401k when they're going to roll it over. That's what many advisors who do do that. So you're down to insurance products. And you can sell somebody a life insurance product, but let's say you do a life insurance product that's a term life insurance product. And let's say you're working with somebody who's actually relatively low income and they need to buy, you know, half a million dollars of term life insurance. Well, the premiums on a half a million dollar term life insurance policy are going to be something like 500 bucks. It's 500 bucks a year. And when you're selling term life insurance, you're, you're, um, just a, a cheap company that brokers their business. Your commissions on a term life insurance product are going to be anywhere from, let's say, 75 to 110% of the first year premium. So you're talking 300 to 500 $150 of revenue. So, but the, the amount of time that it requires, however, just to sell somebody a 300, uh, sorry, a half a million dollar term life insurance policy is very significant. Usually, it'll, most people, it'll be in a situation like that, it'll be a minimum of uh, an initial meeting to find out their situation. Then uh, you'll have a second meeting. And if you are, are uh, if they're 
everything goes great. They really want life insurance. Let's say that you uh, that they buy the policy on the second meeting. Now you're in it for two hours, but it's two hours plus 30 minutes to drive there, 30 minutes to drive back, or for them to come to your office, or then you have to do the work of get, creating the proposal, and you have to figure out where did I get this person. And for every, you, you only sell one life insurance policy for, for every five people that 10 people that you meet if you're doing referred lead prospecting and five people that that will sit and talk with you so your your closing rate is going to be one out of three one out of five on life insurance could be a little bit higher if you're really good but it never gets that much higher so you actually are going to go through 10 hours of work uh, to sell one person a life insurance policy my ratio there was five to one so 10 10 hours of meetings for two hours of meetings with the person who buys for a total revenue of 500 bucks like it, it just doesn't work and and so that's why working, selling financial advice to, to, to low-income people, I don't know any way to make a business out of it except as a media business. And that's where, uh, that's, what I, that's one of the reasons why I have done it. You can do it as education. You can do it as a media business. But the only way to do it is to sell one to many. And, and so instead of ever meeting with per, one, the person one-on-one, you can only do it if you can speak one to a hundred, one to a thousand, one to a hundred thousand. So your, your, your path to do that is host a podcast, host a radio show, sell books, sell products, sell seminars, and that's the way that you can meet, you can help people. Now, if you also want to do professional financial planning, after you get people on that track and they're actually making money, then you can afford to come back and do it. Then you can afford to go ahead and, and bring in those other areas. But I, I, I share your heart of wanting to help, but you can't do it. I don't, I don't know of any way to do it. If you know of anyone who's doing it, you let me know. If you interview someone and they're doing it, you let me know. I'll bring them on Radical Personal Finance. But I have never been able to figure out a way to do it. Sure. Well, that's really helpful, Josh. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Here's the great thing. If you will serve the wealthy, serve people who make a lot of money, serve people who have a lot of money, they will really appreciate your advice. And then if you want to donate your time to teaching a seminar locally or to doing something like that, go ahead and, and, and do that. But there's no way to do it that I know of make a business other than, like I said, go work for Dave Ramsey. Um, Dave is, is, has done a tremendous job because he speaks the language and he does a great job. And that man has helped more people, more poor people become rich people and just avoid problems than anyone else I know. So go work for him or, or just go and copy what he's done. Chris in California, welcome. How can I serve you today, sir? Hi, Joshua. I'm actually in Idaho. We used to live in California, ah. but we're, we live in our motorhome full-time traveling around the country. So um, we're just here in Idaho at the moment. Great. I'd like, to, I'd like your opinion on whether or not my wife and I should convert some or all of our traditional IRAs to Roth IRAs. Okay. Why do you think and, you should and, do it? Well, uh, in order to uh, reduce our required minimum distributions in the future, thereby reducing our future income taxes and leaving more non-taxable assets to our beneficiaries. So we're both retired. Mm -hmm. We did. We retired early two years ago, and we don't need those distributions at all. What is your current effective tax rate? Uh, current effective tax rate is um, right now effective is about twelve uh, percent this for this year. Or no, I'm sorry, for this year, twenty two percent. And who do you intend to leave these accounts to when you die? Um, our uh, Brothers and sisters or their offspring? Are your brothers and sisters or their offspring wealthy? Uh, 
or are they in fairly low? Is, are they in high tax brackets or low tax brackets now? And what do you think they'll be in the future? Uh, listen, five or four, three of the four siblings are in high tax brackets and will be in high tax brackets in the future. Well, so the, the scenario you're describing is the right scenario to convert. Um, how old are you? I'm 47. My wife is 54. Yeah, I think that um, I think I would. Uh, so, just by way of background, here's the decision tree. So, for most people um, who have accounts that are in traditional retirement accounts, for most people, they're going to be spending that money in retirement. And because they're going to be spending that money in retirement, usually it doesn't make any sense to convert it to a Roth because most people in retirement are going to have lower income than while working. And it's true because uh, it's very hard to accumulate through a traditional job. Uh, it's very hard to accumulate enough money so that you're going to have more income after retirement than than while you're working. The people who do that are people who either start very early and save very aggressively and earn good rates of return, or those who build big businesses and sell them. Those types of people can enjoy a higher income after retirement. But most people who are accumulating in retirement accounts just through a 401k at their work, they're generally just not going to have a higher income in retirement. They're also not going to have a higher income in retirement because the, the retirement for most people is a low, time of lower expenses than higher. Um, when you're younger, you are having a bigger house because you have children, you're paying for the expenses of children, etc. Most people at that point in time will have more expenses than they do later. And so for the average person, really, their income is lower in retirement. Well, in that situation, it makes sense to take the income as a traditional IRA because you're going to be paying tax at the at the lower rate so that's the that's most people that's not your situation because if you have an account that you don't need now you're thinking of it from the perspective of minimum let's say a 50-year time period let's say you guys die when you're 90 100 years old and and now you're in a situation where you have a very different time planning horizon and so if you're not going to be needing the money then you want it to accumulate in the most effective and efficient way possible. And the problem with a traditional account is it starts to spit money out at the age of seven and a half, whether you need it or not. Most people need it and they spend it. You're not going to. So in your situation, a Roth IRA is a good solution. And here is the, here are the major benefits of it. It gives you uh, the ability to do require to avoid required minimum distributions. So instead of uh, you know a measly let's see fifty four for the older of you two, uh, seventy instead of in sixteen years starting to take income out that you don't need. As long as you're alive, it can just continue on, and then it can continue on as a spousal Roth, and then you can continue on as a stretch uh, stretch IRA for your beneficiary. Where if you leave it to a very young beneficiary, that Roth IRA can be stretched out in terms of its distribution schedule over their entire life expectancy, which could lead to a massive growth free of tax. Uh, and then the last wrinkle is you're in a very low effective tax bracket. So I would just do it carefully, strategically, ride the brackets in your conversion schedule, but I don't see any reason not to convert for your situation that you're describing to me. Okay. Is there, uh, what marginal tax brackets should I stop converting at. Right now, if my wife turns 70, we'll be in the 35% marginal tax bracket. And I turn 70, we'll be in the 30, using the current tax rate, 
or we'll all be in the 37% tax bracket. I was thinking of converting up to the maximum within the 24% tax bracket. Which What's your top marginal bracket that you're in now? Uh, top marginal right now is 22%. How much money do you have in the in the traditional IRAs that you want to convert? $1.8 million. And how much room do you have in that 22% bracket? How much more income can you pick up each year before you go to the next bracket? Any idea? Uh, this first year, about 60000 So... Yeah, it would be about 60000 every year, I think, uh, in order to get, in order to stay into the 22% tax bracket. Are you going to leave all this money to relatives? Are you going to give some of the money to any qualified charities? Do you, do you, do you know yet? We don't. Right now, it's um, to our relatives uh, with the idea of giving some to some charities, but we haven't identified that yet. I do intend to open up a, uh, advi- a donor advisor fund through Fidelity or Vanguard in the future and put some of that money in there as we're we're accumulating it and then using that as a tax write-off. But we don't have any specific charities identified at this point in time. About how much is your total net worth currently? About $7 Do you have a good financial planner that you work with? No. We had a financial planner that we worked with four years ago and then revisited another two years ago before we retired. And I don't have one at this point in time. Didn't think I needed one at this point in time. Well, obviously you don't need one to get rich because you've already gotten rich. So you're doing the good, a good thing. Um, financial planners are not very good at helping people get rich, but they are good at helping rich people save money on taxes. Uh, that's my <laughs> my piece of advice on it. You know, it's funny. One of the things that one of the things that that bugs me. One of my personal pet peeves, and this is for um, Leif earlier, who was talking about how to become a financial advisor. One of the things that bugs me is people often give the advice, and they say, or, or I hear people say, "Don't ask money advice from people who have less money than you." And it bugs me because there's a sense in which it's true, but there's also a sense in which it's not true. And the sense in which it's true is don't ask a financial advisor how to you know, build a $7 million net worth uh, if you've built a business and done it that way. Go ask a business person who's built a business or whatever the path that they've gone on. But that that assumes that all wealth, that there's no technical aspect. And here, what you need is not somebody to help you get rich. You need a financial advisor to help you with some of the technical planning. So I believe... I, if I were you, I would not make a situ- I would not make a decision on this at this point in time. What I would do is sit with a uh, try to find an advisor. Um, there, there are many good ones out there, and you could do this virtually. But I would try to find an advisor who would look at your situation and talk to you about charitable planning and consider also um, some some charitable tools. Because what I think your situation, yes, you could do a conversion. But I wouldn't be converting. I would not be converting money in a in a in anything over the, the bracket that you're in now, because the people that you're likely to leave it to 
are, are, are likely to be in a lower bracket. And I'm going on gut here because I would need to sit down and this would take time to, to try to run some spreadsheets and try to figure out. But if your brother has his own $10 million net worth, he doesn't need your money. So you're not going to give it to him. And he's the one who's going to be in a high income tax bracket. It'll be your brother's, uh, you know, your brother's son. It'll be your nephew who you're going to try to help go to college, you know, and, and he's the one who's going to inherit the money. Or it's going to be your grandnephew, your grandchildren, or things like that. Those are the types of beneficiaries that you're likely, if you're anything like most people, that you're likely to leave the money to because they're the ones who need the money. And they're also probably going to be in, in lower brackets themselves. So why should you convert at a 35% rate uh, and pay the tax now just so that your beneficiary 40 years from now uh, or 50 years from now or 60 years from now doesn't have to pick up the income and and pay the tax at 10%? Fundamentally, the, the question between Roth and IRA and traditional IRA all comes down to what bracket are you in? And whatever bracket uh, that you're in, that's going to be the one that 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 whatever bracket that you're in when you pay the tax, that's the better option, which is why for most people, the traditional, if you have the money in a traditional IRA, it's best to keep it there in the traditional IRA. Now, your problem, just for the sake of of, of other listeners, your problem is the RMDs, but you could handle the RMDs um, elsewise. You can always just give away the RMDs and you can figure out, and we can we can allocate some of the the IRAs to a charitable uh, organization. You can go ahead and set up your own donor advised fund. We can look into some sort of charitable trust, um, depending on your desire for the income or who you desire to to help with the money. I think you you need to sit down with a good planner, a competent estate planner, uh, and and think through some options because depending on your how much of a of your charitable goals that you have like meaning you have more money than you're going to spend so thinking through what your strategy is with regard to charity who you desire to give the money to how you desire to invest the money that can impact your that that should that should be the biggest impact here if you're just wanting to give money to people then this conversation about traditional and Roth is good. If you're wanting to give money to uh, organizations that aren't tax-qualified charities, then that'll be a different approach. If you want to give money to to organizations that are tax-qualified charities, then that'll be a different approach. And, and so I don't know that we can do that here in this Q&A call, but I do think it's worth your time um, to uh, to cover. Okay. Well, then I will look into speaking with a financial planner about this. Absolutely. All right. Next. What a, isn't, isn't that so fun? <laughs> Good problems to have uh, doing. And that's why I love technical planning. Just real quick, before I go on to the last caller for today's show, I want to just make the, the, the point that I was making in case it wasn't uh, in what case it wasn't clear about asking people for uh, for wealth. Here's my issue or sorry, asking people about um, for advice. I don't have as much money as Chris has yet. Um, I'm working towards it. I'm investing diligently. I'm building my my careers and businesses, and who knows how he developed his wealth. But I'm not as rich as Chris is yet. But that doesn't make me unqualified to give him some useful ideas, as long as I'm clear about the scope of those ideas and not overstepping. And that's the key that I would encourage you to think about when you're taking advice. 
Take advice from people, but make sure that you're clear on what they're qualified to give. I'm not qualified to tell Chris um, uh, maybe some of the inside secrets that he implemented to develop what he's developed to, in his portfolio. But I am qualified in the areas that I'm qualified in, and you are, and, and you are too. The other problem is, if you're seeking advice, don't be scared to seek out advice for pe from people who are a little bit ahead of you. Um, and let me give an, uh, but not a lot ahead of you. I'll give an example. I try to make sure that radical personal finance is not dominated completely by experts who've written books who are selling them. I try to talk to normal people because the, the advice that normal people have or that regular people have is often more tangible and helpful than the advice that the expert has taken the time to write down. Now, a good expert will approach their different, uh, will, will think about where they are in terms of who they're trying to help. But if, 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 I, if we were to ask Chris about budgeting, you know, my guess would be that he's not able, like he, he, he probably was there at one point when a flat tire was the end of the world, but his budgeting, I can't imagine he sits down and he budgets every dollar in his, uh, on his table. But if you're deep in debt and you're, you're trying to fight your way out of credit card debt, if you go and talk to somebody who just did that, and find out what they did, that's going to be more helpful than talking to somebody whose budget, whose budget is, is running to six figures plus per year. So take advice. And that's just a point of clarification because that, that's one of those little things that sounds cute when people say it, um, but it's not very accurate. And it's a personal pet peeve of mine because <laughs> I give advice to a lot of people who are richer than I am, but I try to tell you um, what I'm good at and what I'm not. So maybe that was just to solve, absolve my own conscience, but it's done. We go finally to Alex in Ohio. Alex, welcome. How can I serve you today? Hi, Josh. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. And, my pleasure. Uh, thank you for everything you do. It's really, uh, you have got a fantastic podcast, and I really appreciate it. You've definitely uh, given me some advice over the last half a year or so that I've been listening to you. Good. Steered me away from some bad decisions. Great. Thank you very much. How can um, I serve you today? Um, well, I'm looking for... Uh, maybe just a little bit of advice or affirmation to what I'm doing. It's um, I'm early in my career life. I've had uh, this is my second job now that I've had for going on two years, and um, I know that the the key to increasing my you know it, being able to increase my income is the most important key while maintaining my monthly spending. Um, but in the meantime, and as it, my income grows. Um, I just want some advice on uh, how to save better and where I should be saving and maybe what my focus should be on. Because right now I have it spread into uh, a few different places and I'm not really happy with how high the savings are for any of those three um, places that they're in. Okay. But Let's start with your income. What is your, current, advice. what is your current income? Um, it's 45000 uh with bonuses uh, closer to 50. Great. And how much are your current living expenses that you're spending? Um, just uh, monthly rent and utilities or? How much money do you spend every month? Um, that's about, I would say about $1,800 a month. Okay. So how much money do you add to your savings accounts every month? Um, each month, it can vary a little bit, but I'm uh, on track to be maxing out my Roth IRA at about 450 a month. Uh, 
350 to 400 a month for, uh, let's call it liquid savings, and about another 200 or so a month for long-term housing. For uh, kind of a long-term savings, I'm thinking of it as a sort of a house down payment. Okay. So that's about a thousand a month um, that you mentioned there. Four fifty in the Roth, four hundred in the savings, three fifty to four hundred into savings, and then two hundred uh, into your house down payment funds. That comes out to be a thousand or a thousand fifty a month, uh, which brings our total to between eighteen hundred dollars a month of of expenses and a thousand dollars a month of savings. That brings us to twenty eight hundred dollars a month, uh, which annual. Yeah, that's about right. Right, so we got twenty eight hundred dollars a month, which annually comes out to thirty three thousand six hundred dollars. So we're missing here about fourteen thousand dollars. Any idea where that money is? Sorry, about sixteen thousand four hundred dollars. Any idea where that money is? I guess I'm just uh, I didn't have a, a spending figure. Okay. On hand, I guess I'm spending a little bit more per month. That's, That's okay. something I need to work on, cutting so, down my expenses. Yeah, so the reason I'm asking the question that I am, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my secret. Um, and it's fine if you don't have it at the top of your head or if it might not be in front of you. But the reason I ask those questions first is to find out if you know the answer. Um, and to find out, can you account for all of the money that is coming in in the form of your paycheck and all the money that's going out. Now, you may not be able to do it here live. Who knows if you have your spreadsheets in fr- and whatnot in front of you. But if I gave you a day and said, come back and tell me where your money is going, could you, could you do that? Um, might take a little more than that. Okay. So here's where you should start. And I'll, I'll answer your question on accounts, and we'll go to that in a minute. But before you worry about that, what I want you to do is to build a system for yourself so that you can track where all of your money is, com- is going. And so um, what you need to begin with is you start with your total amount of income. You take your paycheck, uh, and you, w- whatever paycheck you have now, or whatever one you just got, and you write down on that paycheck, you write down the gross income number, the top line number. And then you write down all the things that are on your pay stub. So you've got there your income taxes that are being withheld by your employer. You've got your employment taxes that are being withheld by your employer. You've got your medical costs and benefits, et cetera. Uh, whatever you know, your medical insurance is, or if you have any kind of group benefits that are being d- d- subtracted there, and write down all of those numbers. And then in your personal spending, write down all of those numbers as well. And in the coming weeks, try to get a sense of how much all of these figures are over the course of a normal year. So if you say, net 12 months, I earn $50,000, well, let's start with your employment taxes. If all of that money is coming to you as wages, then you know that $3,825 of it is going to go out to Medicare and Social Security taxes. So that means that you're spending, you're actually spending um, uh, $318 a month on your employment taxes. Now, I don't expect you to to say that number to me right off the bat, um, but I want you to be very aware of it. I, I mean, no, most people, of course, don't think about that in their spending, but you should uh, because that's just a lot of money, $318 a month that you're spending on your employment taxes, your Social Security and your Medicare contributions is more than you're putting into your house fund. And so you should be aware of that money. Then you look at your taxes, you look at your, your federal income tax return, and you look and you say, how much money did I pay? 
pay last year in federal income taxes and then possibly in your state income taxes. And you write all this stuff down on a piece of paper so that when we, when we run the numbers, you know that you have personal expenses of $1,800 a month, you have savings of $1,000 a month, and then you have <clears throat> tax expenditures of $1,000 a month. And, and so you can figure out where that money is. And so the way that I ask you the question, I'm listening for how quickly you know these answers, and that's giving me an idea of your of your budgeting system. I'm listening for your precision. I'm listening for if you're if you're thinking about it, and that's giving me an idea of your budgeting system. So my guess, my my radio guess from you uh, would be that that's your should be your first area is try to get a sense of of where all the money is coming in from and where all the money is going from into on an on a monthly basis, and that'll help you because even if you just let the money accumulate in your checking account, um, the more money that accumulates there, the better. Now we can figure out what to do with it. So. Before we go on to the accounts, does that make sense, What I've the instructions I've given you? Yes, it does. Okay. Now, tell me uh, why you aren't happy. First of all, tell me how much money do you have in these accounts and why you're not happy with your current plan? Um, well, I began saving about uh, maybe a, a couple years ago now. My retirement account is up to about $10,000. Uh, house or long-term savings is about 2,500 and my liquid or car, I consider it my car savings since I'm, I don't make a car payment that gives me extra. Um, I put that money aside that would be towards a car payment towards, uh, liquid savings. So that goes to, uh, that's up at about a thousand right now. Used to be a little bit higher at some expensive car repairs. So, um, it's about 1300 total. Congratulations. So you, I'm sorry, 13,000. You are officially in the top third of the U.S. American population with regard to wealth uh, because you could lay your hands on over $1,000 immediately if you needed to. So you've officially gone from the bottom two-thirds to the top third with your savings um, over the last couple of years. So congratulations. You should feel really good about that. Thank you. <laughs> now, what are your financial goals at this point in time? Well, that's sort of what uh, needs a little more focus and direction. I, I know that I want to be saving as much as possible, but um, and I'd really like to get my retirement savings from 450 a month to um, closer to $1,000 a month, get my savings up to closer to 10000 a year. Um, and then for... My, my liquid savings, that's serving as mostly as kind of an emergency fund, kind of for repairs or this or that, whatever might come up. Um, and I would like to be saving for a house as well, but that sort of competes with my retirement savings. So um, that's why it's sort of a, it's a low, it feels low to me. It's very slow growing. Um so let's I, sort of, I, I struggle with that. Understood. So let's begin with retirement. When do you want to retire? Um, the general age, I mean, who knows, but the general age I have approximate is maybe 68. Okay. Why do you want to retire at 68? Um, I feel like... I really don't have that great of a reason, really. 
necessarily one way or the other. I just feel like that's a, about the right time where you'll want to start slowing down. Okay. All right. Next, you talked about building up your, uh, you said you, so one of your goals was to move your retirement mo- contributions from $450 a month up to $1,000 a month. The second thing you wanted to build was liquid savings. How much liquid savings do you want? Um, I'd like to maintain at least uh, several thousand in liquid savings to cover emergency expenses, let's say. Okay. How comfortably. Much, how much is several thousand? Um, let's call it uh, thirty-five hundred. Okay, three thousand five hundred. And how did you come? How did you arrive at that number being the right number? Um. Mainly because, besides that, uh, I can't think of um, any emergency besides, uh, you know, a significant maybe medical emergency or that would uh, require more than that. I think even if I were to lose my job, I would that would give me enough time, thirty five hundred, to uh, to comfortably search for, let's say, a couple months. Okay. All right, and you said that the final financial goal that you have is you'd like to save for a house. What kind of house would you like to buy? Um, that's a, a complicated question because I don't know if I'll be living where I am right now within the next couple of years. I have a, a girlfriend who whose family is in Michigan, and I don't know if, whether I'll be staying here or there. And uh, she also uh, is she would like a, a big family, and I don't know whether it would be really what the best strategy would be to start off in a in a cheap apartment for a little while, or to um, move into its you know a, a large house to start off with, and just live there forever, for uh, or at least you know for our entire working lives or so. So that's where I sort of another place where I struggle. I'm not sure what I'm saving for. Okay. And uh, in addition to these three goals, do you have any other financial goals? Um, these are really the only three right now, although I know in the future uh, there will be a lot more things to consider. So of, like, these, uh, of these three goals, which of them is the most important to you? Oh, um, that's tough, but I guess retirement would be the most important. I think I've ordered them in importance, how much I put into them every month. Okay. Why is retirement more important to you than building more liquid savings and more important than saving for a house? Um, I think it's because I feel like I have time on my side right now and I want to put as much as possible into my retirement um, savings to so that I give it the best opportunity to grow to as uh, high of an amount as possible by the time I'm ready to retire. How old are you currently? 23. Okay. All right. 
And then the second, in order of importance, your second goal is liquid savings. Why is liquid savings more important to you than saving for a house? Um, for one thing, a house isn't necessarily an emergency to get a house. Um, I could continue living in an apartment without, you know, much of a problem or living somewhere um, that doesn't require a huge down payment. Whereas with my liquid savings, that uh, can be very important for in case of an emergency, particularly for expensive car repairs or if uh, I need to look for a new job or um, anything that comes up in that way. Okay. Now, let's talk about for a moment about retirement, and I'm going to start giving you some advice and stop asking so many questions. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you'd like <laughs> to retire at age 68. How much money do you want to spend? Um, per year in retirement, I would say somewhere in between 60000 and 100000 Okay. So how much money do you need to have accumulated in order to spend that amount of money? For 60000 about there, I believe, I'm not sure how much I need um, by the time I, I'm 68. But I, I, I did some calculations online. And according to it, assuming a, a 7% uh, return on investment, annual return, I think I need to be saving about $12,000 a year. Okay. All right. So, so I suppose that's my floor for where I want to be as soon as possible. Why do you want to spend $60,000 per year in retirement, but only to spend uh, $21,600 per year now? Um, just I suppose since um, I, like the, I, I like the idea of having uh, more money in the future to be able to do um, what I want and not have to worry about um, not have to worry about not having enough money to do things or to or to uh, help my family or to give. I don't I don't want to be limited. I suppose at that point in my life, I I guess that's how I envision it. Right. Right. No, that's good stuff. I think that's that's what we all want. <laughs> I think all of us want to have enough money to not be limited in our choices by finances and to have enough money to help others uh, and to be able to have enough money uh, so that it's not a concern, um, uh, such a big, big concern to us. Here would be, uh, let me ask you one more question. Your okay. frustration about your savings plan. It sounded like you were trying to say, well, am, am I saving enough? Is your frustration that you're not saving enough money? You, you don't think you are? Is your frustration that you're not sure that you love where the money is being saved? Explain to me a little bit more of your frustration. Um, it's, it's the fact that I, it, it really comes down to increasing my income and, um, and saving more, reducing my, my monthly spending on other things. Uh, just because I know I have these goals, I should be saving this much per year, this much per month to reach my goals. And 
or at least I know I don't have as much of a, a goal in, uh, say, my house down payments that I do my retirement and liquid savings, but I feel like I, I, I want to be saving more. And um, it's, and it's frustrating having to, you know, choose between house savings and retirement savings. And I, I wonder whether I should be putting more towards uh, retirement, going all in on retirement, or um, maybe until I reach the 3000 or 3500 in my liquid savings, maybe I should make sure I have that first before I put more money into my um, down payment and retirement. I guess I'm just a little bit confused. Okay. All right. So if I, if I have good allocations. All right. Right. <clears throat> a decade ago, uh, I also was 23. So I was where you are. And uh, I made about the same amount of money as you were making uh, at that time. Uh, and I was where you are. Uh, and in terms of life stage, uh, I was not married at 23. Uh, my wife and I were friends, and uh, we were certainly interested in one another romantically, but uh, we were, I, w- I was where you are. And so let me, and I also was where you are with regard to my interest in retirement, my use of financial calculators and all of those things, were, we would probably get along really well. So I'll just share with you a little bit of what I've learned in the last decade and what the what I think, a little bit of what my message is from this stage of life. I don't know what it's going to be like to be 63 yet, um, but I'll, I'll tell you what a little bit of my message is for the younger men like you who are a little bit younger than than me. The world of finance didn't serve me well by focusing me on retirement. Um, now, I'm all about your achieving the goal uh, that you described of not having to worry about having enough money, not having your choices limited by money, uh, being able to help other family members when they need help, etc. I love those goals. I'm 100% sold on that. But I was diligently, when I was your age, I was diligently socking money aside into a Roth IRA, and I didn't know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so here's what I have learned. I think the reason why we struggle a little bit with our savings goals is because they're not meaningful enough to us. You have impressively long-term perspective. Your ability to think 45 years into the future is admirable, and it is absolutely the probably the number one thing, or at least one of the top three things I would look for to see is somebody going to be successful. People with a long-time horizon, the ability to think in the future, that seems to be, if you study the literature, that seems to be one of the most predictive factors to know whether somebody is going to be financially successful, successful in life. The ability to, to delay gratification and to, def- to defer gratification seems to be the number one or one of the top few factors that leads to success. And you have proven and are now proving that you have that. Your girlfriend should consider you a great catch because of that. Because if you have the ability to think forward multiple decades and to defer gratification today, because you could buy some really fun stuff with $1,000 a month, but you're choosing not to buy that fun stuff. and Instead, you're choosing to think about your future financial security. You're choosing to think about your future financial assets. You have the, the cornerstone of success habits. 
by, by having that long time horizon. People who have a short time horizon usually are broken, desperate most of their life. And so if you were going to change anything about yourself, uh, if you were going to change anything about your children, teach yourself and your children to have a long time horizon, to develop the ability to delay gratification for the future, and to follow through on a good plan for a long time. Now, you're doing that. Here's the problem. Because your goals are so vague, you're contributing money to these accounts without any clear sense of purpose. If you want to retire with a $60,000 per year income in today's dollars, you probably don't need to save $1,000 a month. Let's do some quick math, and I'll just uh, I'll do it real fast to give you an idea of it. I'm going to ignore doing an inflation calculation here, and I'm just going to assume uh, just static numbers that that uh, not accounting for inflation, because inflation calculations take me a few extra steps, and they just slow me down just a little bit. The calculator that is fine that you, that you used, but, but let's just do some quick math. If you begin today at the age of 23, and you save and invest until you're 68, years old. That gives you a 45-year time horizon. So I'll just plug this into the calculator here. 45 years, and let's convert this to monthly. So that's going to be 540 months from now. Let's go with your 7% number uh, right now, and let's put that in. So that comes out to be 0.58% per month. Let's start with a present value of $10,000, which is what you have saved in your account. And let's put $1,000 per month into that account uh, each month going forward. At the age of 68, under those expectations, you could expect to have an account value of $4,045,952.84. $4,045,952.84. Now, that's probably far more money than you would need to produce $60,000 per year of spending. So if we just if we just use the 4% rule on that number and uh, that comes and we'd say what's 4%? You can you're going to spend 4% of that account value. That's $161,000. That's two and a, that's over two times the amount of money that you said that you need, $60,000. And it's over uh, 100 it's 150% more than what you said you needed with regard to $100,000 per year. But I don't think you would even need that much because if you're not spending $100,000 a year today, you're not going to spend $100,000 a year in retirement. People who are frugal don't just all of a sudden start spending more money in retirement. If you would save that money for that much money for retirement, you would wind up in a situation where you're like the last caller, where you've got millions of dollars that you're not going to spend and you're just thinking about how do I give this away, which is great. I want you to be there. But the point is, you don't need to save this much money for retirement. Now, here's what I didn't hear from you. I didn't hear in your financial goals, I didn't hear you talk about anything relating to marriage. Do you, do you hope to marry at some point in time? I do. Okay. So you didn't say to me, Joshua, I'm saving money for an engagement ring, or Joshua, I'm saving money for a wedding, or Joshua, I'm saving money to move to Michigan, or Joshua, I'm saving money for... Um, a really great honeymoon, or Joshua, I'm saving money so my wife and I can do such and such. Um, I didn't hear any of those things. And so that concerns me. Now, I'm not saying that to be mean to you, but as somebody who is 10 years down down the road, that's going to be a much bigger impact on you than having $4 million at age 68. Similarly, I didn't hear you say anything about opportunity money, opportunity funds. Um, you mentioned that you're saving money in a, into a car account, and you have... Uh, 
$1,000 in that right now, but you didn't say anything about investing into something that is related to your career or into switching to, from your current career and developing some a higher source of income. You mentioned that, that you know that's important, but you didn't talk to me about any specific goals related to that. So here would be some goals that I would recommend that you consider that I think are a little bit more tangible. And my hope with these, these tangible goals is I want you to save more money than you're saving now, but just to put slightly different names on it so you can understand what those, what those goals uh, actually are. So the first, first thing that I would recommend that you do, um, I would first recommend that you allocate about $10,000 of your current savings strictly as your emergency fund and or your opportunity fund. As a single man, you should put yourself in a situation where you have six months of an emergency fund. And at $1,800 per month, six months comes out to $10,800. Now, you could get a job faster than that. But what I would recommend to you that you set as your first goal is to save $10,000 and save it. And here, I'll come back to this in a moment. You could save it in a Roth IRA because there's no reason why you couldn't get it out. But because retirement is so important to you, I would just say, just keep the Roth IRA as it is. And I would say, save $10,000 first into your liquid savings accounts, just a saving account at the bank, money market. Um, I'd put half the money in cash and store it in, in, uh, in your safe or, or in your safety deposit box at the bank or put it in your dad's gun safe or, or so, whatever. Find a safe place to stash it, but, but save $10,000. In your life thus far, have you ever had $10,000 sitting in your bank account? I have not. Not okay. even close. All right. Once you hit that number, you will achieve your first target that you told me that you wanted to achieve at 68, meaning, not ha meaning having enough money to not to worry about having enough money if something, if you need money and to not have your decisions limited by money and to be able to cover yourself and to help someone else. I, I can't use your exact words, but that's basically what you described to me. You don't need four or five million dollars to do that. You need ten thousand dollars to do that. Can you think of any decision that you would like to make or any problem that you might face financially that if you had $10,000 in the bank, you couldn't solve or anything you couldn't make at this stage of your life? Uh, no, that would, that would sound, uh, make things a lot easier. I'm sure. Right. Now, for anything that came up, right. 10 years from now, $10,000 won't be enough. Right. Because I kind of, I have lots of problems in my life that could happen that are bigger than $10,000. Right, but at, at at your stage of life, ten thousand dollars gets you there. So I would recommend that you set that as your first target, is that you save for that. After you've saved for that, and I think you should be there in a few months. So if I were if I were you, I would set a, an aggressive target of that goal. Um, do you have any major important dates coming up? Uh, birthday, uh, anniversary, um, uh, at work, anniversary with your girlfriend, or any important dates coming up in the next few months that are personally meaningful to you? Um, not 
Not particularly, I suppose. All right, then make one up. But pick a date that seems exciting to you and set a goal of saving 10000 uh, bucks and try to get there okay. as fast as possible. Now, when you have a short-term goal like that, it makes it a lot easier for you to put yourself in a situation where you're aggressive about cutting your expenses. You put yourself in a situation where you can actually build more money and savings because you have a short-term goal. It's hard to feel motivated about putting $1,000 a month aside when you've got to wait 45 years to see the results of that, especially when the compound interest mm -hmm. curves don't start kicking in really powerfully until about 20 years from now. So, but, but having 10,000 bucks and, and imagining that and putting yourself at where you've got that as a goal, that should be personally uh, motivating to you. Now, after you've done that, the second thing I would recommend to you, as you sit down and imagine over the next few years, as best you can, any big expenses that you think would be coming up. So here you should be thinking about marriage and you should be thinking about establishing yourself in a new household together with your wife. Think about how much money you might like to save to be able to do something like buy an engagement ring. Think about how much money you might like to save to be able to pay for a wedding. Think about how much money you might like to save to be able to pay for a honeymoon. Think through those. And I would recommend that you put those on your list because if you'll be thinking about that and preparing for that, it will make your entry into marriage, if you wind up proposing to your girlfriend, it will make your entry into marriage far far more pleasurable than most people's entry into marriage. So rec I recommend you consider that and start allocating funds for that. Second, with regard to the house, try to get some clarity on it and set some bigger goals as far as, okay, what, what do you need a house for? Here's what I'll tell you. You can't know now what you'll need 10 years from now. And the best way to approach it is just to, to wait until you're married your first year of marriage, rent the cheapest apartment that you that is is appropriate for your and your wife's um, income levels and what she and you together decide that you can handle. It should be comfortable enough to not be frustrating, but it should not be opulent. And and start to build your life together. And then after you start to build your life together and spend time with her, and after you're married for a year or two, then you'll start to have an idea about uh, about. The best place to, to the best types of things that you like and the types of things that you don't like, and then as you start to have children, children only come you know one or two or very rarely three at a time. Um, usually they come one at a time, which means they're pretty easy to tuck away into little corners, and they're small when they're when they're when they're born. They don't really move around a lot, and so you still have loads of time that you can take time and be flexible. And what you want to do is at this stage of your life maintain your flexibility as much as possible, because in order for you to hit your lifestyle goal or your career goals, that if you can keep your flexibility and you can just stay renting an apartment so that you can easily move, and so if you can keep your possessions few and limited in, 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 in number and in size, then you'll be able to make strategic moves that will help your career to go from $50,000 of earnings to $150,000 of earnings five years from now. That should be your target. In the next five years, figure out how do I go from $50,000 to $100,000 to $150,000. And if five years intimidates you, make it 10 years. But I've, but you could go, at 23 years old, you can go from 50,000 to 150,000 by, by the age of 28. But in order to get there, you'll want to maintain your flexibility. And so I would caution you to be slow about committing to big things like houses, save for them, but be slow about moving in that direction. And build your career, build your, build your life together with your wife, and build your career at this stage, and keep your financial options open to you. 
the last the, the next target I would recommend that you that you that you target is set yourself a goal of getting to a hundred thousand dollars of accessible money as quickly as you can now that accessible money should include your Roth IRA but outside of that it shouldn't really include many other major investments it should include primarily money that's available to you and then in the next few meaning just in bank accounts and cash and money markets etc then over the next few years dedicate yourself to trying to figure out what your investment strategy is going to be is your investment strategy going to be to pursue a corporate uh, the path of, of, of corporate income earning where you're gonna you're gonna pursue the corner office approach well in that situation then your best investment strategy is just going to be put money in your 401k by publicly traded mutual funds and focus on your earnings is your investment strategy going to be to build your own independent business if so you need money to start the business is your investment strategy going to be purchasing underappreciated under underpriced assets and selling them for a higher dollar figure well whatever assets you're going to be working with are going to be you're going to need money to, to work with and so if you'll have money available to you then you can pursue whatever investment strategy you decide makes sense for you and then you and your wife as you start to move and get clarity on what your future would look like together you're gonna to live in Michigan or are you gonna live in Texas are you gonna live in in uh, uh, apartments are you gonna flip are you gonna buy cheap houses live in them while you fix them up and then sell them a couple years later what are her skills what are her career ambitions what are your skills what are your career ambitions you'll want that money and as you have that money to draw on you can achieve that goal you set at 68 um, far faster than waiting till 68. You'll be there literally in three months with that $10,000 number, or th three or four months, and five, two years from now, three years from now, you can continue to build. Now, if you follow this path that I'm out outlining for you, and you set aggressive financial goals, then you'll be able to enjoy the fruits of what you're talking about in retirement every year going forward, forward. Every year going forward, you will be able to enjoy that financial stability, that financial independence. And then it'll just be increasing levels. So at this stage, you can take your wife on a two-month honeymoon. Um, but three years from now, you can take you guys can do a 12-month trip. Or five years from now, you can build a 12-month trip. And by having money, you'll have life decisions available to you that aren't available to people who put all their money in a 401k and just feel like they can't touch it. And that's really, if I were going to go back and preach to my 23-year-old self, that's what I would say. So I'm not saying don't save money. I'm saying save more money than you're saving now. But just think about it with a slightly different frame of mind. And I believe that you will then build from your current place in the top third of society. And you'll go up and up and up. And you'll enjoy financial abundance at every stage going forward and you'll be able to build those satisfying things you know i always love the phrase that that um that zig ziglar used to say he says i want all the things that you want to have the things that money can buy and all the things that money can't buy and that's where i would am trying to direct your attention is to thinking about the things that money can buy and also the things that money can't buy that's my speech questions comments anything to be clarified alex um, thank you so much. That um, that really gives me a lot to think about. I really appreciate the uh, the help with goals. I guess I'm not a uh, great at setting goals for myself, but that's going to help a lot. Right. If you will go back, Alex, and listen to the recording of this show, it'll be published in ten minutes, and listen to the types of questions that I asked you. I was very intentional in my asking you those questions. 
because what I'm hoping is to hear that you have good answers for them. And it's not a matter of there's something wrong with you if you don't. Most people don't. But if you get to the point where you can answer those questions for me, clearly, then you don't need me anymore. You can just guide yourself and coach yourself to everything else, that, to, to anything that you want. And so here's what I did. I started by asking you about your management of your current situation. Because you can't think about, uh, you know, people who are behind on their bills, they, keep, <laughs> they can't think about big financial goals. Um, so, so until you have a good basic money management system in place, which yours is, is good enough, but you want to constantly be thinking about that. That's not a goal. That's a tool. That's a methodology. You've got to have a good financial management system in place today. So that's why I started with that, was to get a sense of how in control of your money you are. And you're doing great. You're in control. You could probably tweak a few things, but you're in control. You know what's coming in, and you know where it's going out. And you want to make sure that as you go forward, forward that you always know what's coming in, and you know what's going out. That's important. Now, the next thing I asked you is I asked you about your goals. And I didn't, I didn't feed you the goals. I asked you, I said, what are your financial goals? I didn't say anyone else's. I said yours. Because your financial goals are the ones that matter. Then I asked you why those goals are important to you. I said, why, why are those goals important to you? To try to get you to clarify, oh, here's why this is important to me. Then I asked you to rank those goals. And after ranking goals, you put yourself in a situation where you can know, here's what I'm going to work on first. And that ranking should reflect their personal importance to you and also the logical order. So I don't think logically you should put any money into your retirement funds until you have a big, giant emergency and opportunity fund. Because if you're going to move from, and you're in Ohio, if you're going to move from Ohio to Michigan, that's going to cost you money. You're going to need money to put down, you know, first, last, and security deposit on a new apartment. You need 10 grand. So I would say put 10 grand aside first before saving for retirement. But then I also affirm what you said, where you said, I need to start it now because that keeps the compound interest working on me. Let's go back to our math table. If I drop that, that, those years of investing, what was our, our future value was, let's do it real, do it, let's do it real quick. So again, 45 years, um, 7% interest is what we used, present value of $10,000, $1,000 per month. And our future value there is $4,045,952. So let's call that 4046000 Now, if we drop that investment time horizon from 45 years to 40 years, that number of future value drops to 2,803,238. So that would cost you, run the math, by waiting five years and not setting aside that $1,000 into that 7% accounts, that costs you $1,242,000. So you are absolutely right to prioritize retirement investing in terms of the earliness of it. But these other goals are going to make a bigger difference to your lifestyle. Having enough money to propose to your girlfriend and get married and, and, and enjoy setting up a household together, having enough money to buy a house when you decide you want to buy a house, that's going to, be far, that's going to contribute far more to your quality of life than having an extra million two will at 68. Million two at 68 is not going to matter. Um, you're going to, because you're going to have more money than you need no matter what. So 
that was my final thing that I did is I said rank them and then figure out a way to target them systematically, figure out what's the right number, why is this important to me, which of these is more important. Then you'll start working towards it. And then the answers about what accounts, what investment vehicles, all that stuff is easy. So go back and listen to it. And if you'll hear the way I asked you those questions, if you'll just ask them yourself, then you won't need me. Six more months of listening and you, uh, you can uh, go out and uh, go on to something more interesting. <laughs> Good enough for today, Alex? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for calling in. I really, um, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, and man, I love doing these, uh, these Q&A calls. I hope that those of you who are listening, I hope you've enjoyed these calls. If you would like to get on next, week call, next week's call, please come on by RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Uh, I love doing these and I, and I would love to talk to you and, and answer your particular question. Uh, in addition to that, uh, just a couple of, of notes about administrative things. Uh, I am not, a couple of things that I'm deeply aware of is thank you for your patience with me the last really two months as we have uh, made this transition. It has been quite the challenge, and the challenges haven't stopped. You know, right after I recorded, um, <laughs> right after I recorded the show that I just released previously, saying to you that we've gotten on the road, I wound up uh, uh, that very. Uh, that, that very next day, I wound up taking my trailer in and, and spending two days in the shop uh, getting the axles replaced. So, just the challenge of figuring out uh, the challenges of figuring out how to make uh, how to make the the, uh, the things work on the road, how to figure make these shows work, etc. While also keeping moving for, forward, that's been uh, that's been a challenge. But uh, we are soon to be stable, and the show should be coming out back on the regular schedule. Lots of stuff coming. I'm also aware that, um, just personally aware, uh, I haven't loved the mix of shows I've done recently. I've done just a lot of stuff personally, not a lot of technical stuff. Uh, it's just been done the best I can. So thank you for your patience with that. Look for that to change in the next few weeks as we are stationary again. We're doing a mad dash across the country as what right now. In the future, once we get stabilized, once we get into our rhythm, I'll start sharing with you where we are, etc., and, and what we're doing uh, as well. So. Maybe you didn't need all that. I just felt like I owe uh, uh, an accounting to you, my listeners, uh, of where things are at. Thank you all so much for listening. And I am now going to pack up my gear. <laughs> the first Q&A show from a picnic table at a rest area. Hopefully you consider it a success. A little bit rough on the production end, but it'll get better in the future. Uh, if you thought today's show was good, tune in next week for next week's show because they will be even better. Talk to you soon. 